Hello, welcome everybody. Uh, we're here with the ASIL Academic Advisory Committee. We have here Professor Martin Westwell from Flinders University. Uh, Professor Westwell is the Chief Executive of the SACE Board, the South Australian Curriculum and Assessment Authority. Um, sitting here beside me we have Professor Anne-Marie Carroll from the University of Queensland. She's the Associate Dean of Research in the Faculty of Humanities and Social Services and a Professor in Educational Psychology. We also have ASIL CEO, Asha Murthy. Do you need an introduction, Asha? <laughs> Do you need a further introduction? Okay. Uh, we have Professor John Halsey from Flinders University. He's from the university's College of Education, Psychology and Social Work. Uh, I'm here representing the educator and we represent educational excellence and leadership in Australia and uh, I mean it, it's something that we share very much with what ASIL do. So on the stage here we have a, a very broad spectrum of ex expertise and we'll be I guess starting off uh, with some questions for, uh, for the panel. Uh, I'd like to start with a, a question for Asha. <laughs> Are you ready? Okay. Look, uh, this year's Vision and Voice conference will set the, the agenda and tone for ASIL's year ahead. Uh, Asha, you said the second part of this theme, which is setting the learning agenda, is very, a very powerful idea. Um, and I was hoping you could tell us a bit more about why this is. Um, every year, educational leaders come to this conference and uh, because we are national cross-sectoral, uh, we get educational leaders from all sectors coming and all levels. And we just felt, uh, we actually started that um, subject or the, um, you know, the, the tagline, if you will, setting the learning agenda about four years ago when we actually realized that when people come to this conference, um, leaders across all levels, all uh, sectors of education, they are actually connecting with each other and networking to set the learning agenda for the next 12 months. Now, there may not be a formal document or a formal declaration, but that is in fact what they're actually doing. And so we carry that over now for every year. So every year we have the theme, but we always have set the setting the learning agenda. Hmm. So that's where that came from. Wonderful. And I think everyone here is contributing individually in a very powerful way and collectively through what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, I'd like to turn my attention here to Professor Anne-Marie Carroll. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, look, your research includes at-risk behaviour of children and adolescents um, and also self-regulatory intervention and intervention programs. Uh, your Mindfields and Cool Kids programs take strength-based resilience approach to student well-being. Uh, in terms of policy to address the needs of at-risk students and more, bro like more broadly, uh, do you see these approaches starting to take root in a meaningful way? Um, I, 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 yes, I do. I, I think that we have some ways to go, but I really do think that we are seeing a, a lot of um, great work in schools in this area. Uh, in looking at the effects of emotions on learning, I think that, um, that students' emotions really sets the tone for how they learn. 
uh, when they learn, where they learn. And I think it's absolutely paramount that we're embedding social emotional uh, well-being and learning uh, into our schools and into our classrooms. I don't think we can uh, have it as an add-on. Uh, it has to be deeply embedded in, in curriculum and in the work, in the daily work that teachers uh, and uh, students are doing together. And I've loved hearing about uh, dialogue um, and the uh, importance of, of students and teachers dialoguing together. But also for us, it's having very um, important conversations with our teachers and with our students to set the research agenda for, for um, our students also. And how much progress do you think is being made in this area? Uh, I, don't, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a big question uh, to sort of to answer collectively. I think it would be a large generalisation. But I do think that um, there are schools that are doing absolutely wonderful work uh, in this area uh, that would be beacons, um, you know, lighthouses of, of work. Uh, in, um, in the types of wellbeing programs that are, are being utilised uh, and also in uh, um, taking that work even further for their kids. Mm. Wonderful, thank you. Uh, now, John, if I can uh, pass the um, microphone over to you for a, for a second. Uh, look, you've been a principal at both a metropolitan and a rural school. So you've seen things from really both sides of that, that spectrum. And, and the gap is really quite large in uh, you know, resourcing and, and educational attainment between those two areas. But, but drawing from your own experience, uh, what are some of the key challenges for school leaders in these areas in the years moving ahead? In rural and regional and remote? Uh, in, yes, in those yeah. areas specifically. Well, I think one of the huge challenges really is to, uh, without overstating the case, is to get um, the nation as a whole, and in particular uh, key decision makers, to understand that unless Australia does have vibrant, productive rural communities, we don't have a vibrant, productive rural nation. And in order to have a vibrant, productive nation, we need to address and continue to think in innovative ways how do we have high quality education and a range of fundamental human services in rural, regional and remote and in particularly in you know, the rural regional areas, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't wish to uh, denigrate remote for a second, but we have to continue to grapple with that as a nation, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the problems we have in Australia or one of the joys, whichever way you look at it, is our east, eastern centricity, Eastern seaboard centricity. Like, for example, in Australia, in nearly two-thirds of the land mass, we have less than five million people. In Australia, in population density, it varies from about 0.3 persons per square kilometre to over 14,000. That has huge implications for how we think about, construct, frame policy and deliver fundamental educational services. And funding is absolutely critical. It's a necessary factor, but it is not sufficient by itself. And part of, this, part of my thinking is, it's a long-term thing, but is in a sense turning things a little bit around so that rural, regional and remote comes more to the centre of policy thinking 
and uh, policy framing and resourcing and decision making. And I think one of the best models we have, which has still not solved all the problems, is rural medicine. Mm. To make a provocative point, if you're a rural GP, you know more and can do more, partly because of your training and partly because of the challenge of context. When you're a rural, regional and remote teacher, as a massive generalisation, you you've seen a somebody on the way up waiting to build career skill so that you can get the job you really want. And that is part and parcel of the huge challenge we have in Australia to ensure, given that teachers are such a critical resource, they're not the only resource in teaching, to turn things around in rural, regional and remote Australia. Mm. It's a very good point. And, uh, Professor Carroll, I mean, I know a lot of at-risk, there are a lot of at-risk students in these rural and remote areas. Uh, do you have any, uh, anything to say off the back of that in terms of what, what can be done? Oh, I'd absolutely agree yeah. with, the, um, with the comments made. I think that um, we need to invest a, a lot more in our, in our uh, rural remote areas um, and for our at-risk uh, students. Um, yeah, I absolutely agree, yeah. Wonderful. Uh, now, Professor Westwell, <laughs> um, I wanted to, to ask you a question now. You've made significant contributions to the design and thinking about the teaching of science um, in Australia. And I was wondering, in your opinion, is Australia on the right track when it comes to giving young people the relevant skills, the relevant STEM skills that will be useful in the workplace and to themselves as individuals as well? Yeah, I think that's... <laughs> John's laughing because we know that... We're a, I think we're at a real kind of turning point in Australia at the moment when we think about education and particularly science education. I think uh, a generation ago we had a kind of almost a kind of false hierarchy where somehow, especially when you left school, specialist maths and physics were kind of at the top and somehow the arts and the performing arts were considered to be near the bottom somehow. Um, and, what we've, and we've kind of really driven that and we've carried on with that and we've said that STEM is really important and clearly, a way of understanding the world through science and mathematics uh, is, is important. And, um, and in a, a technological age where technology plays a big role, um, teaching our kids to be able to make the most of those opportunities, uh, I think is part of the, the learning entitlement. We, we wouldn't be uh, doing our duty as educators if we weren't helping them to meet that learning entitlement. But then the world changes. And what we're seeing now is that um, artificial intelligence is probably going to have the same kind of impact on the workplace and on our lives as the internet did uh, a few decades ago. Um, and that's really going to change the way I think that we need to think, particularly about science and maths. Because the old way of thinking about science and maths, the old ways of thinking about STEM, Artificial intelligence will be really good at those things. We've already seen things like IBM's Watson computer being better at diagnosing disease than any doctor, in fact, any group of doctors. Um, and that kind of artificial intelligence means that there's gonna be, we're going to need fewer doctors and we're probably going to need more nurses because the, 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 those kinds of judgments, the people judgments, the influencing people, those skills are going to be needed more and more. And if we come back to STEM... We're seeing the same sort of thing. You're going to need that technical knowledge as a nurse, but you're going to need the people skills as well. Philosophy, economics, the humanities, 
uh, the performing arts are moving up the scale as science, technology, engineering and maths are moving down the scale. Especially, I think, when sometimes we think about STEM, instead of being science, pivoting to technology, pivoting to engineering, pivoting to maths, we started to mush them together and see it as one thing. That doesn't, do, that doesn't do anyone any good. It doesn't do our students any good. It's not preparing them for society. It's not helping them to think about themselves as leaders and shaping the future. So there's all kinds of challenges around science, technology, engineering, and maths education at the moment that we're really grappling with. And so the conference, this conference theme about, uh, about, the, about the educational agenda and leading the agenda, um, STEM education is one of those places where I think this year, next year, it's going to get more and more intense as we're really thinking about what's education for? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to, uh, you know, uh, carry on what Martin was saying about the, the skills coming up, you know, the people skills and your point about the, we, we need more nurses potentially than doctors. And, and I think that's where leadership comes in. You know, if you really think about leadership is, to me, it's an art, a science and a craft. It's all three things. There is a science around leadership, you know, obviously the theories, you know, whether it's instructional and all of that stuff. But it's an art because it is about how you lead based on the context. And, and, and it's a craft. It's actually what you do. It's not what you think about or talk about. And which is why I guess this conference and we as an organization, the relevance comes in about creating that platform for even a discussion like this. And I think leadership to me is the, 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 the glue or in fact the catalyst for any of these changes. And I said that in the opening today that you know the, the world we're in, the pace of the movement, the, the changes, the AI, you know, inter everything, leaders need to make sense of this. Somebody needs to make sense of this to families, to companies, to organizations. And leadership is that. And that's where, and leadership isn't about STEM. It's beyond all of that. It's not about STEM. It's not about science. It's not about art. It's about all of it. And I think that's where it comes in. And that's where the setting the learning agenda, that really comes into play. Um, I think we've got a great leadership opportunity here with Martin, given his intellectual capacity and his position at the moment. I'm just reading a book by Jonathan Lear, incredible academic at Chicago, who is a trained um, Freudian analyst and a philosopher. And he's writing a book about how one can learn from uh, ill health, applying Freudian analysis and philosophy. And picking up on Martin's point of it's not only STEM, but it's STEM and more, and what Asher is saying, and your job, Martin, is the chief executive of a senior second assessment board, etc. new, for want of a better term, curriculum areas, which are an amalgam of uh, STEM philosophy sociology or STEM philosophy literature or STEM philosophy the performing arts because it's in the subtleties of the conceptual framing of those things as well as the deep content knowledge that new insights will emerge about how we relate to and use things like and shape and be proactive about AI rather than responsive to it and um, people like Martin and my other colleague there and Usher and this organisation are well placed to start shifting the debate about the rigidity of the hierarchy of knowledge, right, as we push through and literally create, invent new ways of knowing and uh, emerging uh, out of what some people call the chaos that we're in at the moment. Uh, and I wanted to just point to something Asha said that I thought was very profound, actually. Um, 
Asha said leadership is a key driver of, of importance and change in any context. The leader sets the tone, the direction, and drives the implementation. And I think that draws back in a really powerful way to, to what we're doing here today. I, I guess, and that's what I think vision and voice is really about. And mm. that's what I was saying in the beginning of the conference is vision without action is a dream and action without vision is a waste of time because it needs to connect. Because and, and that's where uh, you know leaders need to be operating at a strategic, tactical, operational and transactional level for things to work. Because you can't just sit there and go, I've got this vision, somebody else make it work. But you can't also live in the detail and not actually have the vision for it. And, and I think that's true, whether it's curriculum, whether it's you know regional strategy, whether it's policy, whether it's funding. And it was interesting uh, listening to the system leaders today in there. And they did speak about that, you know, the reality of transferring that, um, you know, down the line into, you know, regional remote is an important thing. And, and I think John said earlier about, you know, funding and resourcing regional Australia. And that's so true, and that's one of the things we've been trying to do is, you know, really shoring up digital resources. Uh, because, to be honest, that's the only way they're going to access high-quality professional learning. Because no matter how hard you try, the economics will not work to take, you know, the, the big thinkers of the day over there. But if we can actually get it to them digitally, given that Australia, I mean, I mean we, can, we can argue about NBN, but at least it's happening. Um, so that that's probably some something there as well. So, I mean, it's I guess we're touching on several points, but the the core of it is that you know here we are you know in a position to do something about all of this, you know, with a panel like that we've set up with some like Martin sharing it, uh, and uh, people like John and Anne Marie and so many others on it. It's really what do we do now? Mm -hmm. I think just to follow up on that, I think. Um, you know, often uh, we'll talk about evidence in education and research evidence in education. And people will talk about evidence-based evidence, evidence -based practice. I think it's really clear you can't do that in education. It's too, it's too complex. And so what's exciting about the panel working with ACL is what I think research can do is it can help leaders to have confidence in their decisions. If somebody's done a big randomised con control trial, then what you get out of that is a general principle, and then you want to be able, it gives you a bit of confidence, but you want to be able to test whether that's working, that would work in your school. Today we've heard from some of the keynotes, I think, and all of them, one way or another, have said something around, you know, you need to look at schools and look what's going on here and is working, and then make sure that other schools that you're looking at that might not be so successful, that they're not using that same sort of evidence or in the same way over here. Um, so, that, so the evidence doesn't stand alone. It can never tell leaders and educators what to do, but it can give them confidence in trying things out. It can give them reference points to say, well, that's not really working. Let's go back to the evidence and see which the key bits were. And if we're missing out some of those key bits, let's go back and have another look. So the evidence and the research is only really useful when you've got a kind of evaluative culture and implementation culture going on in the school led by the, the, lead, the educational leaders. Um, yeah, we have uh, two initiatives that we are working with ACL and the Science of Learning Research Centre. Uh, the first is a seminar series that we've had this year uh, where we've had a panel of researchers and teachers together on a, a variety of topics on attention, uh, well-being and feedback. 
uh, and they've been uh, tremendous in having great dialogue between researchers and teachers and looking at some of that evidence. Uh, and the other area that we've been working collectively on is a partner schools model, which is a, a triadic um, partnership program where we have a research broker working very closely with uh, cluster, clusters of schools and educational leaders in those schools and looking at evidence base again really uh, teaching research methods um, on the ground with teachers and taking a problem in practice and um, developing up action research in those schools together. And then what we're hoping in the future is that that will grow into um, much stronger evidence-based random con control trials and other uh, research projects. So we're very excited about those two initiatives. Uh, well, I'd like to thank everyone for coming and joining us here today. Uh, as I said earlier, we've got an, an immense uh, breadth of experience and, uh, and some wonderful leaders on stage here today. So thanks everyone for joining us and um, yes, hope to Thank see you, you again much. next year. Thank you.